Hey, well, good morning, everybody. So, yeah, let's clap again. How awesome was baptism? Incredible. Thank you guys so much, and we have a lot more to go. Hey, as we get started, uh, before I get started on the message today, just wanted to uh, just take a time out to do something real quick. So I want to invite a friend of mine, Mike Reinsel, up on the stage. Mike, if you'd come up here. Hey, you guys may remember Mike. Mike, uh, you may remember his story from our What If series, where Mike talked about financial freedom. And Mike, um, is, uh, Mike is, has moved to Dallas, Texas, Mike and Christina, his wife, in order to be a part of a ministry there. And one of the things that we value is just seeing people step out and courage to go and do something that may not make a lot of sense at certain times. And so what I wanted to do was for Mike to share just a little bit about what he and Christina are doing and then let us as a church be able to pray for them. So man, tell us a little bit about City of Refuge and all that's happening with that and how you got there. Yeah, awesome. So <laughs> as you know, for the last six years, I've led an international ministry called Mission Hope. Yeah. Our offices were on the campus of an organization called City of Refuge. So it's down in the worst part of the city of Atlanta yeah. in the state of Georgia for every negative statistic from human trafficking to drug use, crime, murder, everything, they yeah. own those negative statistics in that yeah. Vine City area. And so City of Refuge is a 210,000 square foot, wow. what was abandoned warehouse and eight acre campus that is now this transformational hub in the hood, leading people out of the various brokenness of life yeah. into the life that they find in Jesus. So yeah. it's, there are about 14 collaborative ministries that are providing education and healthcare and vocational all in the name of Jesus. So yeah. it's a really cool environment. Yeah, that's what I hear. And yeah. so um, I was in Dallas about six months ago, just visiting with a friend who's a high net worth apartment developer in, in Dallas. And we were just talking about life and he was talking about homelessness in Dallas. <laughs> and I said, if you're pretty fired up about changing the path of homelessness in yeah. Dallas, you ought to come up and see City of Refuge yeah. in Atlanta. So he came up and toured the campus with five or six guys and he left saying, we need one of those in Dallas. And I said, well, Bobby, you're a smart guy. You're, 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 you're a numbers guy. What does something like that cost you think? He said, probably 25 million. I said, that's pretty close. Are you in for 25 million? And uh, he Pressure. said, actually, I am if you're in for moving to Dallas and launching it. So that's kind of how that so took he, place. So he put the pressure on, called a bluff. Yeah, there. yeah come called on. me out on it. Yeah, good. So you're gonna move, you have moved to Dallas we moved already, to Dallas and um, tell me a little bit about what that's going to look like for you, not only in Dallas, but also bigger than that. Yeah, so the vision really is not just to replicate all this great ministry and mission in Atlanta and Dallas, but to build out in Dallas kind of a scalable uh, yeah. model that we could replicate around the country and look at all the cities in the yeah. United States and say, okay, let's stack rank, whoa, Hello. Let's, let's stack rank where those need to be um, and where uh, we could maybe plant cities of refuge many years yeah. after I'm dead and buried. Right, right, right. Because we're, we're approaching that age. Yeah, well, right? some of, one of us is. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you can the, claim that. Yeah. One of the things I, you know, I, I love about this story is that at a time when lots of people like me or you would be comfortable and really kind of have life planned out for them, grandkids even, wait, you have a grandkid and I don't. Anyway, just saying, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm older than Mike. But at a time where they could be comfortable, I mean, they're stepping out, he and Christina are stepping out on this adventure. And so for me, that's just inspiring. I think for maybe some of you, it may be, may be something that God has for you. So we are, man, super excited. Now, Mike, one of the things that you shared and we talked about um, when you told us you were moving to Dallas and was that you wanted to stay connected and maybe some Creek could continue to be kind of your church. Yeah, Tell absolutely. me a little bit about why that is. Yeah, a few reasons. One, I mean, this body... 
um, just exudes Jesus and feels like family. I mean, there is love here that you don't feel yeah. in every single church. Second reason is what we saw this morning. Yeah. A lot yeah. of churches never baptize anyone all year long, and yeah. we do that all the time and yeah. just eight lives that have wow. been transformed yeah. in the name of Jesus in this place. Um, but probably the most important piece is that I think Stone Creek really lives out elevating the name of Jesus and yeah. living that out to courageously go. And Christina and my call was kind of that Genesis 12, one call to leave your family, your countryside yeah. and your father's house and go to a land I'll show you. And in those verses, Abram doesn't ask about where it is, what it's going to look like, who you take, what it's going to cost. He just goes. Yeah, says he says Abram went. Right. And so um, to courageously go, that's what Stone Creek is inspiring yeah. this body to do. And, yeah. and I love the place, yeah. so yeah. I, I don't want to lose that. <laughs> yeah, we're, well, I'm glad. I, I think that when you talk about Courage to Go, one of the things is, I just want to repaint this picture, like there's no really good reason to leave Atlanta. You know, if you grew up here, you're from here, um, there's a lot, again, I know there's a downside to Atlanta, but there's a lot of great things about Atlanta. And so to move is just, man, an act of just following what God has for you. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in the message. And so we, I'm just excited for Mike and for Christina and all that God's going to do. And so as a church, we want to just stand with them. So one of the ways that we can do that is to pray for them today. And so I'm going to pray for them out loud, but I would ask you to pray with me. And if you would just stand uh, where you are, and, uh, which is generally where you stand, where you are. So <laughs> <laughs> if you would just stand and in your non-coffee hand, reach out towards Mike and them. And uh, let me pray for these guys. God, we just want to uh, pray for Mike and Christina. So grateful for their life, for their example. Um, God, I'm just grateful for their courage just to be able to step out and, and follow you in a time when it's just unexpected and not really uh, planning on this in their life, Lord. Just so grateful for that. God, I pray for their marriage as it grows together, as they learn more about each other, and as they um, impact the city of Dallas and beyond, that you would just strengthen it. God, they would continue to be a model of Jesus and his church, Lord. God, I pray for the city of refuge as the ones that uh, will come. Lord, for the one in Dallas, for those people right now who are homeless and hopeless, sleeping under a bridge, that the city of refuge is going to rescue. God, that they're going to find job training and hope, and they're going to understand what it means to follow Jesus, all because of Mike's faithfulness and obedience to go and to follow you, God. And Lord, I pray that for multiplication beyond what they could ever ask or imagine. God, I just ask you to give them more and more of you and more of the, your work and more of the mission. God, I know that there's some people in this room who need to follow you in the same way. And God, I pray that this was a moment for them, that they know that right now you are talking directly to them, that this prayer time is for them to step out, God, to move into a future that you have for them, God. Thank you for Mike and Christina and all that they've meant to us, to me personally, and to our church and what they mean for the kingdom. And we just pray in the authority in the name of Jesus himself. Amen. Amen. Thanks, man. Thank you. So as I said, Mike's moving to has moved to Dallas. Some of you may um, may some of you may have offices in Dallas, may find yourself in Dallas, may need to move to Dallas, right? And so uh, they can hook you up because when you get to Dallas, you got to buy a horse. And so when you get there, you can do all that. Um, but love for you maybe to hang out and you'll see, you can see Mike and Christina after the service. So, hey, so we are just moving into this series today called The Jesus, The Jesus I Wish You Knew. And just kind of framing it up before we get into it, um, there's a passage where one of Jesus' followers writes this. He says, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. It says walk in love as Christ did as he gave himself up for us. And you know, as we look at 
who we believe Jesus is, we believe that Jesus is the, the one person that can transform your life and my life. He is the answer to your life. He brings hope to those who are depressed. He brings healing to those who are broken, that Jesus is who we need to point people to. And so we want to be sure that we do that. This is what his early followers did. Like they would meet Jesus, and then they go find somebody and say, man, you got to come see this guy. Like he is changing things. Like, like there's something special about him. We, you have got to meet him. His early followers knew that he was something special. And so they introduced everybody they could find to him because of his transformational power. And I think if we're honest today, as we think about Jesus, there may be some misconceptions about him. Have you noticed that? Like there may be some false beliefs that people have, maybe some, even some things that you know that other people don't know, but certainly there are some things that get portrayed about Jesus that are not true. And we want to just kind of do our best to just kind of unveil it to the best of our ability and even in our, in our frailty and our weakness, even though we can't do it perfectly, we want to do that so that people will be drawn to him. So, so, so there's a few reasons why there's some misconceptions and one of those is religion. You know, religion, some religion has done a pretty good job of masking who Jesus really is for you. There's a saying that says this, Jesus loves you, but the church wants you to get your act together. Have you ever heard that? Well, you've heard something like it because I just made it up in the first service, but (laughs) you understand what I'm saying. So some of you, maybe you grew up going to church. Did Did any of you grow up going to a church where as a kid under the age of 10, you had to wear church clothes? Anybody? You know what I'm saying? Like, I can still remember my mom shoving my feet in those fake leather shoes that were plastic to, so that I would look like I was dressed up and having to wear those to church. And she wouldn't buy me a bigger size that would fit because I was only going to wear them once a week anyway. And why waste money on that? And so we know what it's like to maybe have some rules put on us, maybe have some appearances put on us that we needed to keep up because of <clears throat> religion. And it's masked. It's masked and prevented people from really seeing the work of love that Jesus came to do in their lives. You know, another, another thing that keeps us uh, from seeing the real Jesus is really media. It's the media. Now, I'm not a media basher. I'm not saying it's fake news. But at times, there are times when you'll notice in the media, they take an extremist group and they paint it as mainstream. And we look at that and we're like, that's just not all of us. I think some of us have seen maybe on the news or maybe you've been downtown and you've seen somebody on a street corner holding up a sign and the sign looks something like this, God hates whatever it is, you fill in the blank. I I think we've all seen this. We've been places where we saw it and, and maybe it made us cringe, but maybe we've been places and saw it and thought it was true, that God hates something. And we begin to believe that this is how God looks at us. We begin to believe that God's posture towards us is one of anger and judgment and condemnation when, when that's, that's not true. It, it looks a little bit like this. I, when, I was, when one of my kids was coming up and they hit teenage years, some things happen to teenage years. Any parents want to say amen to that? Good stuff, right? What? So, so right, when, when I was a teenager, when you were a teenager, it's universal. When you, when you hit the teenage phase, there's just this growing that happens, this, this trying to, this kind of wrestling to find your place. And sometimes it can cause, let's just say, communication issues in the home. Amen? Sometimes that happens. And so we were having a 
communication issue with one of my kids. And so we called somebody in to kind of help us see the picture. And as we began to talk about what was going on, she said this, my kid said this. She said, you know, it's like you're always looking at me with the bad eye. It's like you're always looking at where I fail, where I missed the mark, where I didn't measure up, where I said something wrong, where I had a bad attitude, rather than looking at me with the good eye. It's the times when I did make good grades or at that time once a year when I did clean up my room or the time when I, fill in the blank, did something good. And as she began to explain this, I began to realize she was right. She was right that we would look at her and want to correct something because maybe it was out of fear or pride or selfishness. And we would look into everything that got our attention was the bad. So it was almost as if we were just waiting for her to do something so that we could punish her. It would give us this opportunity to make her act right rather than looking at all the good. And I think some of us, we think this is God. We put this off on God. We say that God looks at us. He's waiting to punish us or he remembers what we've done or he's holding a grudge against us and eventually it's going to come back it's going to come back to bite me what, what do you think that is do you see God with the good eye or with the bad eye I have this question it's very wordy but I did that on purpose what do you think about when you think about what God thinks about you like, so when you think about what God thinks about you, like, what do you think about? What words come to mind? What experience? Like, what, what action did you take or do? What sin did you commit? What mistake did you make? What, what, what is it that you think about when God, you think about when you think about what God thinks about you? Do you think about that sign that I just held up? Or do you think about the verses I started with? That God came to, because he wanted to love us, that God came to give us life, that God came to give us freedom. Like, what is it that you think about? And we live in a culture where there's this contrast between what appears to be judgmentalism and love. And how do we navigate that? And what does that even look like? So we're just going to unpack that for the next uh, 19 minutes that we have together. So let's grab your Bible. We're going to be in John chapter 3. John chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse 1. You can always grab the page number from the screen. We would love for you to take notes, write a few things down um, so that you can remember them throughout the week. John chapter 3. I'm going to just start out in verse 1 and 2. And then I'm going to get to, as you know, if, if John 3, 16, which is kind of the, the cliff notes of the Bible. Also, also the title of a country song by Keith Urban. Am I right? So that makes it questionable, but I'll redeem it. Um, John chapter 3, verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and he said, Rabbi, because Jesus was a teacher, so he calls him Rabbi. We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Right. So let's just stop right there for a second and you can just leave that up. So so. Nicodemus has clearly seen some things. God, Jesus has done some things they can't explain. Jesus has done some things that have gotten notoriety. People are beginning to follow him. And so here's Nicodemus as a leader who does not understand what is happening. So a little bit about who Nicodemus is. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, it says. He was a leader. And so this would have made him a religious leader, a political leader, and a social leader. 
Like in, in our culture, right, we have separation of church and state, you know, and uh, kind of. And, and in that culture, the church was the state and the state was the church and everything melted together. Economics, finances, religion, politics, all of it was together. And he is a leader in that. He's an influencer in that. But he comes, he sees some things that don't fit in his box of religion. And so he comes to Jesus at night. Like, why do you go to somebody at night when, when you can go to them at, during the day? Like, why, why at night? And the reason why is because he had a reputation to protect. He had a system of life that he controlled. And he didn't want to disrupt that system. He didn't want anything to come in and disrupt what he was doing. He didn't want anything to come in and take God out of his compartment, out of his box. And Nicodemus had bought into this idea of the, that, that God was just these rules to follow. And this is what he was doing. And so now Jesus comes and he turns everything on its head. He changes up everything for Nicodemus. And he takes what his system was and he begins to make him see that there's got to be something different. There's got to be something more. But Nicodemus, he wants God in a little box right here because he can control that. He can perform up to that level. Now, the reality is Nicodemus is all of us. He's, he's all of us. We're all influencers on a certain level. Like some of you at work, you're influential. You have people that do what you ask them to do or maybe you do what you tell them to do. You try to take that home. It doesn't work, does it? But you have people that work for you. You send an email. Actions happen. You're an influencer. You're a leader. It's people that follow you. But you don't just have to have a, a corporate job or run a small business to have influence. You know, you may be a stay-at-home mom, and you, you're, the, you're the room mom because you want to be involved. You, got, you also have control issues. We'll get to that in a minute. But <laughs> you want to be involved, and you've got influence. You've got influence with your friend network. When it comes to religion, you've got influence when you invite someone. When it comes to politics, you get in discussions about who to, vote for, who to vote for and when should we vote and how should we vote and who should win and why would we and how do we pick this and there are no good candidates. Oh, there's some great candidates. Like, you're, people listen. You, 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 we all have influence. And we all also fall into this trap of trying to systemize our lives for, at the sake of a relationship with God. And so Jesus knows. Jesus knows what Nicodemus is getting at. Jesus understands that he's trying to fit him into his, that Nicodemus is trying to fit him into his box. So Jesus just goes crazy in verse three and says something out of this world. He says, Jesus answered him, meaning answered Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What? Like, I just ask you about these miracles and you're talking about being born again, like what in the world? Like, I have no category for what you're talking about. I am a grown man, and you're talking about I need to be born again. And, then, and so Nicodemus asks some questions about it. And then Jesus says this, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Don't marvel. Don't think it's something out of the ordinary. It's always been about the heart change. Like, this has always been, this has always been what God has been about. It's about heart change. You see, Nicodemus just wanted the principles to follow. And what happens when we don't realize that it's about transformation of the heart, life becomes a bunch of principles to follow. And we begin to professionalize God. We begin to professionalize God. We want to hold up 
our behavior and our morals and we want to do some good works because all of us want to do some good works. We want to do some good works. We want to classify that as following Jesus when in reality all we've done is some good works so our resume looks better. And we could put that 501c3 on a list and invite people to come in so that when, 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 when conversations happen in the community, my name gets listed right up there because my moral character, man, it's part of how I build my own personal resume. This was Nicodemus's problem. And we can, we can do the same thing. And life becomes principles to follow, principles to live by rather than a person to follow. Have you ever thought about why you want to do good things? Could it be? Could it be that that's what you've seen Jesus to be? Because we live in the Bible Belt. And there's certain things that we believe, certain behaviors we want to have so that we fit in and so that we look successful. And could it be that it's just, that's all that it's been about? And so what, what Jesus does to Nicodemus is like, nah, that's not it. You got to be born again. What in the world? He just takes a bazooka and shoots it right into the middle of Nicodemus's belief system. And then he begins to move into this teaching that is, you know, the cliff notes of the Bible. It is the kernel, the hope of everything um, that we could possibly have. So he goes on in verse, in chapter, uh, in, in verse 16, he says this. He says, God, this is the part that you know, and you memorize as a kid. How many of you guys memorize this in King James English? Remember that? For God so loved the world. I don't remember it in that. I could probably do it, though. For God so loved death the world, if that thou gave his only son... <laughs> That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And we forget this next part, though, okay? Like, we get that. God is love. What about this one? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So what is this world that we speak of? What is he talking about? Is he talking about the universe with plants and uh, planets and the Hubble telescope? Like, is this what he's talking about? It's not. When we see the word, word world in scripture, what it's speaking of is these systems and people that are designed to take the people away from God. Okay, it's systems and people that are designed to take people away from God and the world is bad. Okay, we think that there is evil in the world and it's this generic force out there. The reality is that people are bad. We do some bad things. Some things are worse than others. And not to categorize everybody as doing some of these heinous acts, but let's read the news and you can just see how evil the world is. We think the world's getting better, but it's not. We have more slaves now than at any time in history. Hard for us to believe. Just read the news full of extortion, full of blackmail, and it's full of lying, it's full of cheating, it's full of stealing. Just, we can just read the news to know what's happening. Two days ago, the body of a young 20-something found in a suitcase along the side of the road. Evil. Just yesterday, stone's throw from here, 300 pounds of meth is confiscated out of a meth lab right down the street. So let's don't kid ourselves. We do live in the bubble, but let's just remember World's evil, there are some bad things that happen, but here's the beauty of God's love. It, it, it's not so fascinating that he came for us because the world is big. It's fascinating because the world is so bad. Like, why wouldn't he just write us off? If that sign were true, he would. Lightning bolt, we'd be done. Meteor shower, somebody hits the red button. 
But that's not his posture towards us. Posture is important. Posture is important. Any of you that know things about communication, you know that, that a lot of experts say that 93% of communication is body language, posture. So, so if you're in a meeting, if you're in a meeting, one of the things you're told what not to do, this. Because that's a posture of what? Judgment. That's a posture of you are so stupid. And we think this is God's posture towards us. Because we know the world is evil. And here's what I know about that. While some of those other things I describe might not be yours, might not be what you've done, there are some things you've done you regret. There are some things you've done that man, bring guilt and shame and you wish you wouldn't have done it. And when you think about what God thinks about you, that's what you think about. That's the world. Now the world, when that, because the world is evil, that leads to perishing. Watch what happens in this. God loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should what? Not perish. This is God's posture. Not perish. God did not send Jesus into the world to condemn the world. He did not. This is not God's posture. It's possible, but it's not God's posture. We don't talk a lot about perish and we don't talk a lot about condemnation because it's really not good for church growth strategy if we're just being honest. But this is a reality. This is a reality that you could perish. You could live life separated from God. The Bible calls that a lot of different words from Gehenna to hell to Hades to there's many other words for that. that but it's this life that's separated from God. Here's another uh, synonym for perish means to lose. It means you lose. Like nobody in this room wants to lose. I can tell you that. To perish means you lose. And so what Jesus is communicating, I don't want anybody to lose. Nobody to lose. Like my heart is so big, my arms are wide open. I don't want anybody to lose. My posture is not arms folded. That's not his posture. And now this is where it gets a little tricky, doesn't it? Because if you point out the reasons why someone should perish, you appear to be condemning them. You appear to be judgmental. And there's a difference between being judgmental and being loved. But, but, but just because someone points out the truth about why you're going to perish doesn't make them judgmental. I want you to think about it this way. Let's say, um, let's say you go to the doctor tomorrow. You're just for your physical. You're, you're fine. You really don't need to go. But because you're a responsible adult, you go and you get a physical. And the doctor comes in and says, I, I got to tell you something. You're like, doctor, what is it? He says, you have got extremely high blood pressure. Like it is so high that we may need to send you to the ER right now. It's the highest that I've ever recorded in my career. It's dangerous for your health. Now what's your response gonna be? I can't believe you would tell me I got high blood pressure. I came in here for a physical just so I could punch my card and you wanna tell me something's wrong with me? How insensitive of you to try to point out that I'm unhealthy. Listen, what is your problem? Why are you being so judgmental about my health? Like that's ludicrous. He's just pointing out something that's there. He's just pointing out the truth. He's trying to help. And so when we hear about and read about Jesus pointing out things in people that aren't good for them, it's not because he wants to destroy us, but because he wants to save us. 
It's like when one of the things that will happen with kids is, is you may notice kids can be tattletales. Have you ever noticed that? And nobody wants a snitch in their house, do they? And so when a kid comes in, they start telling on somebody, you can ask them this question. Are you trying to get somebody in trouble or out of trouble? And people who are judgmental, they're trying to get somebody in trouble. And people who operate out of love, they're trying to get somebody out of trouble. You know, we, we look at truth and some people just want to stand on this soapbox of truth and like, I just want the truth. I just want the truth. The truth will set you free. And we end up using truth as a weapon to destroy rather than as a tool to help. Truth can be used as a weapon to destroy or it can be used as a tool to help. You should write that down. That's good. Listen, this is why we have the truth. It's to help people. It's not to hurt them. That's not why. And by not pointing something out is not helping them. It's not helping them. So Jesus says, I didn't come to, I don't want anyone to perish. I didn't come for condemnation. And we have this, we have this capacity as Christians to appear judgmental. Now, this started in the Bible. So watch this. Jesus was about, he was on his way to be executed. He told his disciples I'm going to die. I'm going to give my life, but wait three days. You'll find out it's going to be awesome. So they go and he's about to be arrested. Soldiers come with the religious leaders and a couple other hangers on. And then the one disciple that turns Jesus in. And so they're about to arrest him. And Peter, who is, who is one of the top three closest followers, Peter grabs a sword and he reaches up and he chops off the ear of one of the people who was standing there. Clearly he was a fisherman and not a warrior. Jesus reaches down, grabs the ear, puts it back on and says, Peter, this is, you don't have to defend me. Like this is, I'm choosing not to throw the sword down. I'm choosing to give my life. And sometimes we can get, if we're not careful, Christians, and that's for the Christians in the room. If we're not careful, we can use the truth as that weapon that will cut somebody's ear off rather than a life that we give away for. And we come across as being judgmental. And Jesus says, that's not my posture. Then he, then he gives us his posture in the next verse. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God so loved the world. This is, this is God's posture towards us. It's this posture of love. Now, when we think of love, one of the problems with this idea, when we think of love, is that we think of that Valentine's Day kind of sentimental love, don't we? Oh, I love you. Here's a heart. Here me, here's me spending too much money on a meal. Like, there's all that. <laughs> hey guys, you know you forgot the Valentine's Days this week. You are welcome. <laughs> so we, we have this sentimental version of love, but, but love is stronger than that. That kind of love won't drive somebody to give their life. It won't drive somebody to the cross. It won't drive somebody to die. Love, by definition, is a commitment to someone's good. Love is a commitment to someone's good. If I want you to be better, if I want you to be your best, if I want to see you flourish and I love you, it's going to require some conversations. I'm going to point out some things you do well. I'm going to say, you need to double down on those. This is where you're really good. I'm going to point out some areas where you need to work out. I'm going to point out some areas where you should never go because you are just not good at those. And it's not because I don't like you. It's because I love you that I want you to be better. And this is Jesus' posture towards us, that he loves us. He has this commitment to our good that we don't even have for ourselves because we'll short sell our own lives 
if we're not careful. And here's where the difference between judgmentalism comes in. Now, again, God's posture is not this. One more area of the Bible that we see that is in this book called Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 18, it says, do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn away from his way and live? Like this is, this is God's posture towards us. We all have areas where we're not winning. You've got your areas that you're working on or need to work on. I've got those areas that I need to work on or am working on. We've all got those areas. Where, and God does not delight in the death of the wicked. He wants people to have life and freedom. Now, the difference between judge, being judgmental and love is God's posture. That's the difference. Because on the surface, they can look the same, can't they? You're a liar. You shouldn't lie. Judgment would say that, but love would say, oh, you shouldn't lie because it's keeping you from living the life God has for you. It's completely about posture. That's the difference. Hey, Christian, listen to me. What's your posture towards people? Because I know that I know that I know there's at least one thing you can't stand. There's at least one classification of person that makes you angry, makes you frustrated, makes you want to punish them and that posture is a posture of judgmentalism rather than a posture of love that posture of love says I don't necessarily agree with what you're doing but I love you see judgmentalism focuses on the person and says you're bad I want you to be punished have you ever been in church hopefully not this church but been in church maybe growing up and you thought the preacher was like he he's just told me I'm bad and he's glad about it like what is that that's called judgmentalism. When someone says, you sinned, you're going to hell, and I'm happy. That is judgmentalism. On the other hand, love says, I don't agree with this issue. I don't agree that you're, I don't believe this is God's best for you, but I love you. I love you. And it's a, it's a fine line to walk because nobody wants to be accused or guilty of compromising their beliefs. We have to check your posture. You have to check your motives. You have to check what it is that you're about. So God so loved the world, he gave his son that whoever believes. This one's hilarious to me. Because what I hear about those who follow Jesus, are they are the most exclusive people in the world. They exclude everybody. Actually, we're the most inclusive people in the world. Whoever believes, all comers, doesn't matter your political party, doesn't matter your past, doesn't matter your social status, doesn't matter what caste you're in, whoever believes we are the most inclusive spiritual movement in history. We're inclusive. God includes everybody in that. Whoever believes. Then he goes on. I want to point out another couple of words. God so loved that he gave. Now, this is a really small word, but it is packed with meaning. And most of us have missed this. Most of us who memorize this in the King James didn't get this. So let me unpack this, this small word. When we, when we hear the word so, it's a little bit of a throwaway. It's like, sky's blue, so. Stephen, you just won a million dollars, so. It, it communicates, I don't care. But in the, in the original, the why it's phrased like that, it communicates a level of intensity. An intensity so deep and so strong that God could not do the, the, 
could not do something, could not go to the extreme. So think about it this way. Have you ever, have you ever been so happy that you cried? Anybody? You were so happy you cried. You couldn't help it. You just cried. You were so happy. You actually got flowers for Valentine's Day. You were fired up. Like something happened. You cried. You couldn't control it. Just something you had to do. It was the way that you expressed your emotion. So God the, was so loved. He so loved us so deeply, so intensely that he gave his son. This is how intensely God loves you. And we think that there's this thing out there we've done and God's judging us. God so loved you with an intensity you can't even describe or imagine. How intensely would you have to love somebody to give up one of your kids for them? To die for them. This is how intensely. This is God's posture towards you. This is God's posture. A posture of strong, transformational, life-changing love. And, and it wasn't just the love that happened on the cross, even though that's, that's the ultimate. And it was a love that reached down into the everyday of people's lives. The everyday of your life, the everyday of my life. There was one of Jesus' followers named Matthew. Matthew was a Jew, but he began to be a tax collector, which was, which was like treason. So he changed his name so people wouldn't recognize it. And Matthew just made his living of being hated, being looked down on, bad reputation. Jesus comes along and says, Matthew, come follow me. So what does Matthew do? Matthew invites all his friends, everybody he could get his hands on. And Jesus was with Matthew at a party where they accused Jesus of being a friend of drunkards and sinners. Have you ever been accused of being a friend of a sinner? You fill in what that sinner looks like. Jesus was there. I don't, I don't think his posture was hate. And I think Matthew would say, yeah, he loved me at the cross and he loved me every day. Man, there's a story of Jesus healing a leper. Now, this one's amazing because if you know anything about leprosy, you know that lepers are considered unclean. That lepers, as, they, as the disease progresses, open sores began to open on the body. Fingers and limbs began to fall off and your face becomes disfigured and these wounds begin to be infected and they begin to smell bad and bugs began to grow in them and they're just completely, completely nasty. And because it was contagious and people didn't understand it at the time, they wanted to be sure that nobody who was healthy got near them. So anytime a leper came with 50 to 100 feet of people, they had to yell out at the top of their lungs through a raspy, uh, destroyed vocal cords, unclean, unclean. Jesus walks over to him, puts his hand on him. The first time he'd been touched in probably decades says you're clean listen Jesus comes to you in those times when your your inner voice is yelling unclean unclean and he grabs you because he loves you deeply there was that time when there was a woman who was caught in adultery caught in the act of adultery and they drag her out of a home and they bring her before some religious leaders and Jesus is there and they just kind of asked Jesus, hey, you know, Moses says we should stone her. What do you say? And so here she is in her shame and her guilt and her nakedness, exposed before all these men who had the power to stone her in this moment, full of guilt 
in shame. And Jesus bends down. He just kind of writes something in the ground. He looks up and they're all gone except for her. And he says, where are your accusers? She's like, they're gone. He says, neither do I accuse you. Then he says this, go your way and sin no more. You see, that's the difference between judgmentalism and love. Understanding, embracing the fact that what she'd done was poor behavior, but knowing it was a heart condition and she needed to experience God's love. So Christian, for you today, if you follow Jesus, do you find yourself judgmental towards any group of people, towards any specific person, thinking they should get their act together, thinking they should get things right, thinking they should clean up before they come, before that you can accept them, before they're right? Jesus, Jesus loves them. That's why he says, love your enemy. Here's what I know about most people in here. You're thinking about somebody else, but you're thinking more about you. What you've done, where you've messed up, where you've lied, where you've stolen, where you've looked at things you shouldn't have looked at, where you were dishonest, where you, where you were unfaithful. Like, you remember that. This isn't God's posture. This is God's posture. Let's pray together. God, I am humbled that you would love me. And God, so grateful. And Lord, that I know there are people here and they are just replaying in their mind the things they've done wrong, the places where they feel like you're angry. They think what they think about when they think about what you think about them is condemnations, judgment. And God, we realize that it's not a love that excuses our sin, but God, one that, one that steps into it to lift us up out of it. <clears throat> God, I pray for those who just can't let something go in their life, something that they've done and they feel like is just a dark mark on their heart. God, you would come in today, you would just clean it off, wipe it clean, remove the memory of that. God, I pray for us as a church, God, that we would be so focused on the name of Jesus, that we would love people well. And God, that we would be known as a church that loves people to help them become what you've created them to be. God, not a church that it just compromises their beliefs, but God, who leads with a posture of love. And God, we would understand how to walk that fine line. And God, that when we do stand before you, God, you would say, well done. Lord, we just pray for forgiveness. We pray for hope. And we pray for healing. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.